Arthur Balfour, Tuna Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Wednesday. His weekly Monday appearance except owing to life's manifold vagaries. This occurred on a Wednesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, there has emerged in public discourse recently a hypothesis, a hypothesis to the effect that two parties observing the same phenomena might characterize that phenomena differently, which is to say they would possess different facts about that phenomena. As Dave Cameron, not only if it's possible that something analogous might exist in baseball or the analysis of baseball, but if so, how such a discrepancy has been resolved. If it has been resolved, we arrive at a discussion of short right-handed pitchers and how two evaluators observing the same short right-handed pitcher might reach very different conclusions about that pitcher. This portion of the conversation is an experiment and possibly a failed experiment. Jarrell Cotton isn't a failed experiment. He is, however, a short right-handed pitcher. He's also a member of the Oakland Athletics, a team which just a couple years ago recorded one of the top base runs records in all of baseball. Their Zips projections came out this past week, and they are not optimistic. I asked Dave Cameron what has happened over the past couple years to transform quite a strong ball club into one that might very likely record a worse record than rebuilding clubs like the Minnesota Twins, San Diego Padres, Milwaukee Brewers. Also in this edition program, I asked Dave Cameron to provide as succinct a possible characterization of humanity, and he does. This has been a disastrous couple of years, and I think you could question, like, what are they doing? That example of morbid pessimism and others just like it and what to follow. What's occurring this moment is a simple note. It's a note about Fangraph's membership, and specifically Fangraph's ad-free membership. You're likely aware, listener, how advertisements are essentially designed to short-circuit our reason to help us develop allegiances, irrational allegiances, to products we do not need. But for a reasonable fee, it is now possible to have an ad-free experience of Fangraphs.com so that you can preserve your faculty of reason, enjoy the wonderful content at Fangraphs.com, and also experience faster loading speeds than you could imagine if your imagination is quite poor. It is Fangraphs membership. You can Google Fangraphs membership or click on the link for this edition of the program, with which we have reached the end of the introduction and now turn to our conversation. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Dave Cameron, managing editor Dave Cameron. And what does it begin? Right now. for 30 documentary made in America and uh, about the OJ Simpson trial. And it's interesting because I think this was one of the first trials that was uh, covered in the, in the courtroom uh, comprehensively. And you can see uh, there's, there's footage of Marsha Clark, the prosecuting attorney, one of the prosecuting attorneys saying something to the effect of, I think it will be good that it's televised because it will allow people, it will allow the public to see how a court case actually Proceeds how evidence is given, how arguments are made, etc. But it actually made it more difficult for her because the defense, um, I think, probably aware of the possibilities, they coordinated their dress, they sat in in uh, specific orders, and they were very aware of the camera the whole time, and they used that to their advantage. Right. I think uh, 
maybe ignorance was bliss in the sense of like the, maybe the court of law worked a lot better when we didn't know actually what was going on, and then once we saw it, we're like, oh, we can influence how this uh, uh, kind of right. plays out, and not Nothing for the better. better. And I think that there's a decent argument that like social media and Facebook and Twitter are. Uh, making political discourse more possible and worse at the same time. One of the, the qualities that first drew me to sabermetrics, sabermetric analysis, quantitative analysis in baseball, was that there were something like objective answers for questions that yeah. previously had not d- did not appear to have objective answers. There might have been suspicions, and of course. It's not that it's not that all quantitative analysis began with Moneyball or began with Bill James. There were versions of it, but it but the but there were a lot of things were unlocked, especially with, as sabermetrics became more popular. Um, I'm wondering, and I know that that it, that helped me has helped me navigate life in some ways, right? You say. I don't think I was as well acquainted with just the basics of the scientific method, or I was not accustomed to applying it to my own life, and it and it and it helped me be less anxious about the world because I would say, well, let me ask a question, and then let uh, let me attempt to find some evidence to um, to answer that question. I'm curious, though, there does seem to be a movement. There does seem to be some. Um, in in our in the current events, there does seem to be some real attention paid to even to the relativity of facts. Yeah. Right. And I'm curious, um, with a view also towards uh, not alienating everyone, um, but using baseball as a sort of laboratory, which I think is fine uh, and helps us understand the world. Is there any is there any equivalent like that in the game? Right now, or that, that still exists, is there any sort of thing where where the people can look at the same thing um, and see two different see two different realities occurring? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely still true in baseball. Uh, I think if you look at like, say, I mean, we've talked about on the podcast a number of times, uh, short right-handed pitchers who predominantly pitch off their changeup and don't have dominating breaking balls but perform really well in the minor leagues. Like, say, Jose de Leon, right? Like, right. this is a pitcher who fits almost the exact profile of or pitching. Or Cotton? Jarrell Cotton? Sure. Yeah, the Dodgers had a bunch of these guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, don't have, they don't have them anymore. They traded them all away. Um, these are the pitch, kinds of pitching prospects that fit the profile of guys who have historically done better than their kind of prospect ranking would suggest, right? Kyle Hendricks, mm-hmm. and we, you know, I think we, this has been a frequent topic of discussion between you and I, right. uh, since you like prospects um, with... More obscure. And, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, your kind of prospect, um, and I think that it is still common for, uh, you know, prospect analysts to look at kind of his stuff and say, well, there's no breaking ball, or there's not a very good breaking ball, or the stature's not big enough, or whatever. And I think even Eric Longenhagen, who, you know, obviously we employ and have a lot of respect for, has called Jose De Leon a back-end starter, and mm-hmm. uh, and he's often um, considered to be, yeah, that kind of more the 3-4 starter. He'll give you good innings, but it's, it doesn't have upside. Uh, and then you see that Kyle Hendricks almost won the Cy Young last year, and there's still a cognitive distance of, like, how good does your breaking ball need to be in order to be a good major league pitcher? Like, scouts and, and kind of traditional evaluations would say very good. 
and data would suggest maybe maybe not. Right. Well, and I, what is it? Because because changeups move as well. That's the thing. I, I suppose that's a bit um, unusual, right? Because changeups have movement. They right. they. I don't know if you call it a break necessarily. Um, although the way the sort of way that some people throw it, the hard like the hard changeup that you know. Um, well, I think you, Granky or Felix Hernandez probably is the most famous one, but right. other pitchers have, have thrown it as well. Yeah. There's very little separation from the fastball, but it's getting tons of whiffs because of movement. Right. That it, does that, is it just not, because the, what, it just doesn't, uh, it's not, it doesn't fit the taxonomy? Is that the idea? I mean, I think historically what we've seen is that the changeup is considered a pitch that you use to get opposite hand hitters out, and it certainly is a, you know, platoon split equalizer. Uh, and pitchers who have really good changeups often are good against opposite-handed hitters. But in baseball, traditionally, and this is changing to some degree, the same-handedness changeup has not been thrown heavily. Like you don't see, or you haven't seen previously, a lot of right-on-right or left-on-left changeups. It's a it's a pitch you throw to opposite-handed batters. So when you have these kind of changeup first pitchers or guys who that's their best pitch and they don't have a good breaking ball, often the question is, how are they going to get same-handed hitters out? Like, if you don't have, you know, a big curve or a slider or something that you can throw right on right or left on left, how are you going to dominate same-handed hitters in the way that a frontline starter needs to? Um, but I think what we've seen is that some of these guys who have, like, really good change-ups can add a cutter, and the, and it might not move as much as, you know, a breaking ball, but it can effectively um, neutralize same-handed hitters, or they can pitch up in the zone with a four-team fastball with really good command, and they can get swings and misses at the top of the zone just because it's hard to lay off that pitch, and then also that's where contact is scarce. Uh, so there are ways to get swinging strikes without having a dominating breaking ball, and I think some of these guys um, might end up going in that direction instead of developing a you know a 70 slider or something. So what's the way to what's the, and now let's say a couple things. What are the concerns about a short right-handed pitcher? Uh, well, I think short pitchers in general are, are usually seen as um, less durable because they don't have the frame to handle uh, kind of the full-season workload. Uh, so often short pitchers get moved to the bullpen because the idea is that they won't be able to throw 220 innings a year. Right. And perhaps there's also a question of plane. There downhill is, plane. Right. So I think that's more the question of effectiveness than durability. Uh, one of the reasons why shorter pitchers are less effective in general than taller pitchers is because they uh, are not able to um, right get the downhill plane that allows their fastball to be more effective. They're, and often uh, their release points, because they're shorter, so they have shorter arms, uh, are further back. So, you know, we've talked about perceived velocity, or if you're releasing the ball from 57 feet instead of 58 feet, you get that extra foot where the ball is in your hand and not flying through the air. Uh, so you're maybe you're both throwing 96, but if you release it closer to the plate, the hitter has less reaction time, less time to pick up the spin. Um, and so taller pitchers in general have advantages over shorter pitchers. Um, that's more of a performance question, but I think in general the reason why short pitchers have historically been either avoided or moved to the bullpen is more concerns about durability and endurance. Right. And so would that apply to lefties as well, or less right. often because lefties have a peculiar trait that allows them to survive? Well, I think with left-handers, because there's just uh, many fewer of them, teams can't be as picky, right? Like, you you only have 10% or 12% or whatever it is, the population is left-handed, so you have many fewer left-handed pitchers, so you don't have the ability to be like, well, I only want tall, big-bodied, high-90s lefties, 
because then you, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll never have a left-handed pitcher. So if you want lefties, sometimes you just get Jerry Blevins because there's not enough left-handers out there. Yeah. Jerry. Um, okay, so, so there are, we could say there are some, it seems to be valid concerns. What is the, what is the key to creating a, and I assume that front offices do this with some frequency, to creating a meaningful or productive dialogue to, uh, I don't, I don't, and I don't mean to be like, I, I don't mean to just like we're all sitting in a peace circle. That's not exactly what I mean. But to say the objective of this organization is to employ the best pitchers possible. Obviously, the Rays are not particularly worried about short right-handed pitchers. Right. Um, they have acquired Jose De Leon. Obviously, Oakland is not particularly concerned about short right-handed pitchers. They acquired Jarrell Cotton. Uh, what is the what what strategy do you use to get everyone on the same page? Or is that is that uh, is that question too abstract? I mean, I don't think you need your whole organization to be on the same page, right? Like this is, I think, probably a hallmark of the best organizations are that you have a lot of people with a lot of competing ideas who are all given seats at the table and allowed to voice their um, perceptions. And then Mm -hmm. the competition of ideas hopefully leads to the best results possible, where I think what we've seen is echo chamber organizations where like the only people allowed in in the room are the people who think like the GM they do the same thing over and over and over again, and and they don't learn from their mistakes, and they they don't see their own weak spots or their blind spots. Um, so I don't necessarily know that you want to get your whole organization on the same page. I think you want to have all the pages covered, and then have decision makers at the top who are good at weighting the relative merits of the the ideas being pitched. Well, that's interesting. So the, the so the job of I guess what general manager or president, yeah. apart from his sort of more ceremonial roles. Um, as the you know mouthpiece of the team at some level is also what would you say that a skill that many of uh, GMs or presidents share is their or good ones at least is their ability to weigh information in a uh, I guess in a, um, in an effective way yeah but I think this is like the the reason why it's called general manager and not like primary evaluator or you know top scout or something is that if a President of Baseball Operations, General Manager, whatever you want to call them, um, is running his organization successfully, most of his job is going to be about taking the information given to him and then ordering it and collecting it and amalgamating it in a way that allows them to make a decision informed by the work of other people. If you're if your GM is like constantly like, I'm gonna fly out and like watch the guys in the draft and then decide who we're taking with our top pick based on what I saw, your GM is doing a bad job. Like, that, is, that should not be the role of a general manager in a well-run organization. Like, it's not to say you can't have input or you shouldn't ever watch a draft pick, but that's what you have a scouting director for. That's what you have scouts for. And if you're just going to override their work based on you saw a guy on one weekend and you like him a little bit more than the other guys, then there's no real point in having those guys collect the information because you just want to be the one to make the final call. And that's kind of how it has worked you know, in the past, but fewer and fewer organizations are working that way now because there's just too much information to collect. So you need an army of people doing that work, and then the people at the top are um, entrusted to uh, sort that information in a useful way. Okay. 
I've, I've attempted to facilitate a brief conversation about what I guess is epistemology. I don't know, I don't know precisely what epistemology is, but I believe it is a theory of knowledge. Okay. And how we, how we separate knowledge from whatever the other thing is that's not knowledge. <laughs> we don't know. Um, I don't know if I've done a very good job of it, but I've attempted to, Dave Cameron. And well, you've played your part wonderfully. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. I, again, I don't think it was particularly effective. It was, uh, you know, but you, uh, shoot for the stars. So the I played my part, uh, wonderfully in what you were deeming to be a failure. Well, yeah, but so I was the you, Paul Goldschmidt of this podcast. No, yeah, well, yeah, sure, but yeah. it's not your. It's my boy again. It's not your fault. It's okay, not so your you're, fault. you're the Dave Stewart of this podcast. I'll I'll be the Dave Stewart. Okay. That's right. <clears throat> the uh, we did mention the Oakland A's, and I actually do have a question about the Oakland A's for you. Is uh, I recently had I suppose the pleasure. At least I had the obligation as <laughs> part of my contract with Fangraphs to uh, publish the the Zips projections for Oakland. They were not. They were not that rosy. No, they're not. They're not very good. And uh, this is a team that I feel like what, maybe even two years ago, uh, despite not winning the American League West, posted one of the best base runs records in the entire league. Maybe correct. Does that sound right? Yep. Yeah. And this is this does not appear to be currently a team. This doesn't. This does not appear to be a team that will have a 500 record at this point. No. Yeah. The days were not very good. Can you can you briefly? Recount for me what steps have occurred since two years ago that have uh, sort of disabled this team so so swiftly. Yeah, so I think the, probably the primary one you can point to is the Josh Donaldson trade, right? Like uh, at the time, I think that there was some defense of it. It was not, you know, a, a clear disaster at the time it was made because there was still some reason for optimism about Brett Lurie and what he could turn into. Uh, he was a total bust in Oakland. They hated him as a person. They quickly got rid of him after one year for nothing. And so um, Franklin Barreto, who is the other main chip in that deal, uh, has not yet turned into a major league player. So he's still on the farm. He has some upside, but he's not here yet. So they basically converted a top five major league position player into no real major league value. Like Kendall Graveman's still around, but is not a great player. So you take one of the very best players in the game, signed to a, you know, arbitration contract, so you're getting him at like 20 cents on the dollar, um, and you turn him into pieces that don't really help you. That's like a six win downgrade in the short term, which is difficult for any team to overcome. Uh, they also, um, made short term plays for John Luster and Jeff Samarzja, uh, which in turn caused them to turn Addison Russell into Marcus Semyon, um, so that was probably not as uh, not a not an upgrade in terms of their uh, their future. Yeah, although it should be noted that Marcus Semien also receives the top projection in the team, right. which I mean might be an example of damning with. Him. Right, he's their best player, but he's still not as good as Addison Russell. You'd still rather have Addison Russell. So, probably, yeah. um, and you know, there's other valuable assets that were traded away in those deals as well. So it was just one for one. Um, so I think basically what we have is like the Donaldson trade worked out very poorly. They made some other moves that uh, boosted their chance of winning that one season that have hurt them long term, and then their prospects have not developed. I have to report something to you. Now, this might happen to you. Perhaps it does not. Uh, occasionally, though, I will, especially during the off season, I'll find myself navigating to a player page at Fangraphs, perhaps one that I have not visited for some time, and I will be surprised by what I find there. I, have, I think I have some, you know, 
a pretty strong familiarity with the 2016 season and the players who who made it happen. Uh, but going to Addison Russell's page, I am shocked to find the uh, the values that he recorded in terms of the defensive metrics. Yeah, he was pretty. Stuff. He was pretty good defensively. And it should be noted, it, 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 this is UZR, has him as like a one-and-a-half win player, and uh, defensive run saved, a different metric, different methodology, uh, has him as two wins. A two-win, well, more than that, 20 runs, 19 runs saved at shortstop, plus whatever the positional adjustment is, which is, you know, probably six. So that's like, it's like a two-and-a-half win player just from shortstop. Right. I mean, it's, I generally uh, suggest that people don't look at, like, wins in terms of Offense or defense, like your your win total is kind of the overall. But right, like Addison Russell was like a four win player last year, and like half of his value came from his glove. Right. Yeah, I guess you would say like if he hit if he hit exactly like a regular shortstop, that's what it would have been like. Or maybe if he hit it exactly like a low oh, average player. Uh, no, if he had a replacement level. If he had hit it like a replacement level player, his defense would have made him still an above average big leader. He would have been Jason yeah. Hayward at that point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Jason Hayward, who's apparently working on his swing. Yeah, well... Is that the first uh, best shaper? No, I think... It's a type of best shaper, isn't it? That's not... I don't think that I'm fixing my broken swing is the same thing as I'm in the best shape of my life. I think that's like I'm trying to not be in the worst shape of my life. (laughs) So you you don't think mechanical adjustment is akin to best shape? I think it can be. Like, it's often, like, I added a pitch or whatever... But I think in Jason Hayward's specific case, it's not that I'm in the best swing of my life. It's that I'm, like, trying to not not be a disaster. Are you which, ever surprised? Oh, go ahead. You had to say which? No, no. I'm done. You're done. I'm You're done, done with yeah. that. Are you ever surprised by how quickly – I want to get back to Oakland in a second. Uh, so many stories about how guys uh, learn a new pitch. You mentioned adding a new pitch. So many of the stories about learning to pitch, they, they go along these lines. Or I would say more than I would have assumed. It starts. Oh yes, I was sitting. I was sitting next to one of my teammates on the bench, and he showed me how he held his cutter. And I threw. I threw that pitch in the bullpen, and it worked out well. And now it's. His, and now it's this pitcher's best pitch. Right. That happens it's, a lot. Yeah. It seems to happen a lot. You would think that after having survived, you know, high school, maybe college, or low minors, and then the high minors, pitchers would have. You know, just because of instruction and exposure, would have tried almost everything, and yet you do find a lot of cases where pitchers pick up a pitch just because they're uh, talking with another guy. Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about like who's in the major leagues, right? It was the best pitcher on their high school team, probably the best pitcher on their college team. Like these are the guys who are predominantly in the big leagues. They didn't really need to tinker. Like these are guys who threw hard, so that works in high school. They just throw the ball past people, or they had. You know, one other good pitch, a breaking ball. Usually high schoolers don't have a good changeup. So you say, okay, well, I've got what I need to get through here. Why would my coach or, you know, on my side, why would I be working on a cutter if I can throw 96 with a big curveball and high school kids are, you know, running to their mommies? Uh, even in the minor leagues, like, you know, generally what we see is if you have two pitches and you command them, you're fine. Like, uh, you don't need, you know, three, four, five pitches to get minor league hitters out. You just need to, you know, be able to throw the ball generally where you want with some movement and have more than one pitch and you're going to do well. So I think by the time the guys get to the minor or the major leagues, they probably, in a lot of cases, 
not needed to tinker, and you don't really start um, saying, hey, what do I need to fix until you're struggling? And so if you have a pitcher who has not struggled, perhaps he is not tinkered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I suppose that if you were going to um, if you're going to seek advice, you would be doing it. Major league players would seem to be the best the best case for you, right? Because like the, they're the ones who, by definition, had the most success. Yeah, this guy is getting big league hitters out with this pitch. Maybe that pitch has some movement or you know something to it. Something to it. Then. Yeah. All right. I was asking you about the A's. It seems as though the the best explanation, right, is the Donaldson deal, uh, which shed them of an MVP caliber player, and um, I what received for them some combination of Brett Lowry and Franklin Barreto. You said. Yeah, Kendall Graveman was in that deal too. Um, but oh, yeah, Lori was given away. Barreto's still in the minors. So essentially, for 2017, they traded Donaldson for Graveman, which uh, yeesh. That's not so good. And Graveman, yeah. yeah, I guess Graveman is technically in the starting rotation, but he's yeah. sort of uh, back end type. Not so great. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, and then the other deal was. Well, I said you said they went in on on a combination of Lester and Samarja, right? Which cost them Madison Russell and Billy McKinney, and like McKinney hasn't turned in anything, but that's a player they could have used to trade for something else. So there was some you know lost prospect capital in that run, and then they lost in the wild card game, so uh, they got no real financial benefit from having acquired Lester and Samarja. They didn't get like a deep playoff run. They didn't get season ticket sales. Uh, so they they surrendered a significant part of their future organizational assets uh, in order to get to the wild card game, which didn't help them. No, it doesn't. Yeah, and so and so they're in tough shape. They're in a bad spot. Yeah, I mean, I think if we just looked at kind of like the organization overall and and kind of where they stand based on their revenues and their stadiums and their talent base, you would say they're probably not too many organizations in worse shape than the A's. And they also don't seem to be embracing a rebuild either. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things about Billy Bean. He doesn't like to tear things down to the bottom, and I I, I think it's difficult to separate how much of the organizational philosophy in terms of putting the team on the field is tied to the stadium issue because they've been trying to get a stadium built for a while. It is perhaps more difficult to get the city to give you $500 million if you are... Um, terrible, <laughs> like putting a disastrous product on the field. So it could be that there's pressure from the business side of things just to say, hey, look, you know, if we're going to get the city council to give us a bunch of money or some land or whatever, we need to have Sonny Gray or we need to have Jed Lowry or we need to have Rajay Davis or whatever, like, marketable, useful major league player you can have on a team so that they're not, you know, the 110 loss joke of a franchise but at the same time, like Rajay Davis and Jed Lowry and these guys are not getting you to a championship. Well, they're not, no. And uh, it, one notes, too, that if you look just at the Zips projections, uh, the the San Diego Padres, right? So uh, Oakland has two field players, Marcus Semien and Stephen Vogt, who receive a projection of greater than two wins. Um, San Diego, a team which is not expected to compete, has five players. Minnesota, a team that probably is not expected to compete, has six players who receive a projection of two or more wins. And the Milwaukee Brewers, also probably not expected to compete, have six players as well. Um, that w- So they're, they're roughly as good as three 
they receive less optimistic projections than three teams that are clearly in the middle of a rebuild. Right. The A's are rebuilding. They're just not rebuilding with young players. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or player. Yeah, I guess players with upside or anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're they're treading water. They're trying not to drown. And uh, you know, like mm-hmm. I think if you took the stadium issue aside and said, you know, just based on their major league moves, like this is this has been a disastrous uh, couple of years, and mm-hmm. um, I think you could question like, what are they doing? But I don't know how well you can extract from that the stadium issue, and mm-hmm. and I think my guess would be if they actually had like a real, you know, a building that didn't leak sewage into their locker room with uh, regularity, they would do things different. The owner of the team, what what do we know? What is known about him? So there's been a transfer. Uh, what I think Lou Wolf was the managing partner uh, mm-hmm. in prior years. He, I believe, has handed over controlling interest. To someone whose name escapes me, but they are Fisher, perhaps. Sure, that's not the name I was thinking of, but okay. uh, yeah. But anyway, they have a new team president, I believe, and a new face of ownership. Um, but ownership is uh, um, not that interested in spending large amounts of money until they secure public funding for their stadium, and they have not been able to do that. And is public funding for a stadium is that? Uh Despite the fact that it seems to be uh, disastrous in almost every case, is that a thing that's still going to persist for uh, major league teams if and when they want it? Probably. Uh, especially, well, I'll leave that sentence to myself. Uh, I think uh, we're going to continue to see interstate competition for sports franchises. And if you have, uh, or intercity at least, if you have another municipality who is you know, competing to get your team away from you, and they are willing to offer tax subsidies and basically government giveaways, then there will be pressure for you to do so and retain your team. Okay. Uh, last uh, topic about which I'll harass you. Uh, we, we'll see. Last time we spoke, we spoke at some length about Greg Holland and his decision, the wisdom of his decision to go yeah. to Colorado. Right. Uh, despite the fact that he was uh, he's attempting to rebuild his value. Uh, in the meantime, uh, a number of uh, even more Colorado Rockies content has found its way to the pages of Fangraphs, the Zips projections for that team. A post by Travis Sachek, um, who considers the possibility of – well, he had written about Greg Holland, I think. And then you oh, wrote – Did you not read Sachek's post that you're trying to refer back to? Well, no, I know he wrote about Greg Holland. You also no, referenced it. He he wrote about their uh, desire or their their incentive to be a uh, oh yes, of course, yeah, a of course. radical pitching experiment. Right, yeah, yeah. No, I and I did more than uh, than read it. I I helped to edit it. Yeah, good job with the memory recall. Well, you know, Travis has provided like a site's worth of content since he's arrived. It's, so it's been pretty nice. Keeping it. Yeah. No, I remember that. In fact, yes, we was we had a discussion. Uh, Travis, uh, who is uh, thorough in all of his work, uh, we were discussing uh, the wisdom of using uh, raw ERA figures as opposed to to league and park adjusted ERA figures. And I, I mentioned to him that if he were to use raw figures, um, he would receive a number of notes probably in the comments section yeah. uh, to the effect that he was a dummy. Right, which those uh, notes would not be incorrect. <laughs> no, that's very sweet of you. Yeah. Uh, the uh, right? Uh, do you? Uh, well, Cameron, you've done this before too. I, I, 
from what I could tell, there is, it is unlikely that Colorado is about to embrace a radical pitching experiment. Right. And yet, uh, here it is. Travis Sawchuk has written about it. Oh, do these do these please? What are these? Who are these please for? Are they for the people? Uh, I don't think that I wouldn't call them please. I would call them suggestions. Right. So, like we say, like, hey, here's a thing you could do. Uh, we don't expect the like Jeff Breidich is going to be like, ah, Fangraph said I should like try a three man pitching staff. Yeah. Okay, deal. Let's yeah. do it. Right. Um, so we don't we don't expect that like the organizations are going to take our suggestions seriously. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes public discourse on uh, you know ideas and theories can turn into longer term trends in the sport. Like I think. Uh, you know, the move towards different kinds of relief pitcher usage has been something that the sabermetric community has been talking about for a very long time. And, you know, over time, I think uh, getting people who have thought this way into the game has caused uh, organizations to be more open-minded about how they use relief pitchers. And so, you know, not that we're saying that the Colorado Rockies in 2017 are going to have a radically different pitching staff, but perhaps people reading the site will eventually work for a team. Perhaps people working in lower levels of an organization will be like, well, what an interesting idea. Let me simulate that on my, you know, monster supercomputer that my team has purchased for me and see how that works out. And then, you know, in five or ten years, perhaps they'll be in a position of power and say, well, I've always wanted to try this, and, uh, and the game will change. Well, perhaps it's also this, and it's, this is not uh, much different from the sort of uh, rationale you're giving, but is that... Uh, of course, especially something with like relief pitching, um, in you know the roles, is that one of the reasons why uh, managers managers are uh, are sort of um, attached to the notion of roles and why players are or the, the specific roles that exist now, like you know middle relief, setup, closer, is uh, because that's uh, that's how things have been done for what at least twenty thirty years now. Uh, but if there's if there is some sort of discourse publicly about the advantages of pursuing a different strategy, then maybe that uh, leaks its way into the the clubhouses or in, and managers start to see it, and they do not feel as though they are departing from from norms as greatly um, if they do decide to uh, deploy their relievers differently. Right. I mean, I think public sentiment. Uh, what I did like. I guess what was the year, like 2004, I guess the Red Sox said they were going to try closer by committee, and I think they had, like, Keith Folk or something, and they said, like, basically we're just going to try and use him in different situations, but not always the ninth inning, and the media backlash and public backlash was swift, and mm-hmm. they were essentially shamed into going back to the traditional way of doing things, uh, because no one, manager, GM, whoever likes to show up to work every day and have reporters be like, why did you do that stupid thing? And then listen to talk radio and see the paper and, like, everybody being like, well, this guy's an idiot. He should be fired. Um, because, you know, whether we um, should hold this power or not, like, public perception is a powerful tool, right? And, like, um, I think the amount of criticism the Diamondbacks got specifically from the sabermetric community over the last couple of years probably led to uh, the organizational turnover after just two years. Generally, they get a lot more than that, but there was such a wide level of scorn over the types of moves they were making that I think the Diamondbacks more quickly reevaluated whether they were going the right direction. Um, and so I think right, the public 
response to organizational decisions or beliefs uh, can have an impact on job security, and people don't like to get fired. No, people don't. Getting fired is one of the worst. How are you going to pay for your housing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to try to not get fired. That's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you are uh, you're less a threat uh, to be fired now because we've reached the end of the program. You fulfilled your obligation. So I was going to get fired if I didn't reach the end of the no, program. No, I'm not suggesting that, but uh, well, of course, as you're well aware, David Appleman is he quietly listens to the live recordings of all of these. Of course, yeah. Yeah, that's he's, he's omnipresent. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're all set, though. I appreciate it, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. I guess we'll do... Uh, we're slowly creeping back towards the Monday recording after... By, by one day. Thursday last week, Wednesday. Maybe we'll do Tuesday next week. <laughs> yeah. Something to think about. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. You're welcome. That has been... Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.